Good morning. We sang that song last night at um, Pauline Bryant's 21st birthday party. Why are you guys laughing? We sang that at her birthday party last night together around the piano. Um, and uh, it was such a nice time. We actually talked about doing a traditional service in the future. Sorry, Kathleen. Um, we talked about doing that one time, um, just all traditional, old school music. Uh, it was so nice. And um, we're very grateful to, to have the music we have and have great musicians and a, a real passion for the hymns of God. But that was uh, one of the songs we sang. It's one of my favorites. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we go to the Lord in prayer. God, for some of us, this might be the first moment in this week, maybe even the first moment in our lives where we have pondered your glory. And as we sit here this morning in silence, direct our minds, direct our hearts and our eyes towards your glory. God, so many of us have cares and concerns on our hearts this morning. And those cares and concerns matter, Lord God. They're big concerns. Some of us have health issues. Some of us have family and relationship issues. Some of us have money issues, Lord God. Some of us have work-related issues. And the list goes on and on and on. And Lord, your word tells us that if we make first your righteousness, that all these things we worry about, Lord God, these things that we think matter, you will take care of. Your word tells us, commands us, dare I say, commands us to delight ourselves in you and in your ways. And so, Lord, as we sit here this morning with our concerns and our cares, let this be a moment of blessing, a moment of comfort as we look to you, Lord God, and we understand that all of life's shortcomings, all of the fleeting pleasures of life, all of the things that we think matter in life, Lord God, that the world and the competing authorities tell us matter, Lord God, that as we ponder your glory, there is something far, far, infinitely far greater than all of the things we worry about here today. You are most glorious. Your glory was most beautifully displayed in the resurrection of your Son. And in that knowledge this morning, convict our hearts, Lord God, to be enlisted into your mission. This is perhaps one of the most important parts, the most important part of our vision, God. Because your mission 
must be our mission. If your mission is not our mission, in both our individual lives and in our collective church life, if your mission is not our mission, we are running the race in vain. There is no guarantee of blessing if your mission is not our mission. You promise to be with us and to never leave us even until the end of the earth. You promise that, but your promise is for those who are in and involved in your mission. And so God, make your mission our mission. Make our hearts love your mission. Make us see your glory and want to share that glory with the world. You told us we are the light of the world. But where do we get our source of light from? Our source of light comes in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, let us take the bushels from over our lights this morning and shine our light in our area of influence. Lord, let us today make a commitment to make your mission our mission. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're now on the fourth and final leg of our vision. We've been talking about our mission as a church and our vision. The mission establishes what we're here for, and that is to cultivate a greater love for God and for neighbor. We're here to cultivate a greater love for God and neighbor. Jesus said these are the two chief commands. That we are to love God, we are to love neighbor. Christian, if you're not loving God and loving neighbor more and more, you're on the wrong path. That is the goal. And so our church is going to focus. That is the mission of our church, and that's what we're going to focus on. But how do we live that out? Now, that's the vision. And the first week, we learned that our vision is, it is where we're going, this is the trajectory, is to strengthen the faith of every believer. Jesus wants us to make disciples. Teaching is one of the chief roles of the Christian. And so we want to strengthen the faith of believers. There are many reasons for that, and I won't go into them all. Second, we want to deepen the roots of Christian fellowship. Jesus has a mind that the people of God will be together. They will be one and prayed for that. In the high priestly prayer on John 17, Jesus' main thrust in his prayer was that the Father would make his people one as he and the Father are one. Third, we talked last week about building Christian homes and about how God has redeemed the home that has fallen and how we can use our redeemed homes for the glory of God. That's a major, major important deal for us. It's a major important theme in in Scripture, but it's very important for us that we use our homes for the glory of God. And today, we're on our fourth and final leg of our vision. What are we going to do to show that we love God and neighbor? And that is... We want to reach South Florida for Christ. You know, when you say reach the world for Christ, even when you say reach South Florida for Christ, it seems very daunting. South Florida is a very big place. There's something like 6 million people in the Tri-County area of Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. And that's all called South Florida. You would throw in the keys there and you're well over 6 million people. What I have in mind with reaching South Florida for Christ is that when we leave as a church, many of us go into those three counties. In fact, how many of you, by the show of a raised hand, how many of you live in Miami-Dade County? Would you raise your hand if you live in Miami-Dade County? And how many of you live in Broward County? Would you show your hands? 
It's almost half. And how many of you live in Palm Beach in Boca Raton area? One, two. All right. So we've represented all three counties. Anybody in the Keys? You guys have a task to do up there in Palm Beach, by the way, you and Edwina. All three of the counties are represented in our church. People come, there are people who come from Palm Beach. That's a long way to come to church. So how then do we reach South Florida for Christ? That is a major, major part of our vision. And what I want every one of us to understand this morning is that it is the task of the church as a whole that is fulfilled by the individual members. It's, a, it's the task of the whole church, but it is fulfilled in the individual members who go out into their respective communities. Here's what we believe about reaching South Florida for Christ. We believe that every believer, every Christian, is responsible for telling others about the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Number one, we believe that it is a speaking aspect. We believe that we are to tell others about Jesus Christ. Our vision is to create within our church a desire for souls through reaffirming God's image on every man, woman, or child and their absolute need for reconciliation to God. Well, that is what we believe about reaching South Florida for Christ. I remember as I was reading this week, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. At Christ's ascension, two angels were standing there and they asked the disciples this question. Why do you stand here looking into heaven? What were they looking at? Were they simply amazed at the sight of seeing Jesus Break the law of gravity right before their very eyes? I mean that seriously. It was probably a sight to see. Were they standing there waving at him as they said their last goodbyes to their master? Were they trying to figure out just where Jesus was heading off to? For 40 days he was showing up and leaving at a moment's notice. We don't really know what they were doing but what we do know is that these men of Galilee could not live the rest of their lives with their heads in the clouds. Now that their master, Christ Jesus, is gone from them, the question that we all have to ask is, now what? What was the purpose and meaning of their lives now that Christ had left them? Consider the fact that after the crucifixion, some of the disciples went right back to fishing. Peter, during the, this time of the, of the resurrection appearances, Peter just goes off and goes fishing. Says to the guy, seven of them, sitting there, he says, let's go fishing. They're right back to doing what they used to do. They had been with Jesus during his three years of ministry, and now they're right back to doing what they've been doing. Now what? And I wonder how many of us, after we've met the Savior and spent some time with Him, have simply faded off right back into the old ways of our life. If we read the resurrection accounts in the Gospel and in Acts, 
We have a picture of the disciples dithering about the meaning of Christ's resurrection. That means they weren't sure about the reality of what had happened. In Matthew, some worshipped while others doubted. In Luke, Jesus has to rebuke them for their unbelief. In John, the disciples are back to fishing again. In Acts, they're concerned once again about the restoration of the earthly kingdom of Israel. And all of these reveal to us that the disciples were confused about just what Christ's resurrection meant for their individual lives. What does it mean now for us? They weren't sure what to think about the resurrection, and they weren't sure what they were to do now. Again, I wonder how many times we baptize people in the church only to leave them standing there wet in bewilderment, asking the question, what do I do now? In every case, when a person trusts in the living Savior, there is that question, now what? This morning, I want to talk about the answer to that question. I want to talk about what Christians are to be concerned with now that they've met the resurrected Christ. I want to talk about concerning ourselves with the ultimate thing in life. Namely, that sinful man is in the process of being reconciled to a holy God. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their book, What is the Mission of the Church?, Claim that one question drives the entire biblical narrative from start to finish. That means from Genesis to Revelation, there's one operating question that drives the whole theme. And it is amazing when you read Scripture just how true it is. When you hear this question and you go back and you read Scripture, you won't be able to unsee it. This question drives the entire biblical narrative, and the question is this. How can hopelessly rebellious, sinful people live in the presence of a perfectly just and righteous God? That is the question that drives the whole Bible. How can rebellious people live in the holy presence of God? It is God's work to make that a reality, that they do live in His presence. But how does that happen? And if the Bible is God's final authoritative word for human beings, which we believe that it is, that the final authority is God's word, it's not our pastor's word, it's not our professor's word, It's not our beliefs, not our deep beliefs about life. It's it's not that. If the Bible is our final rule in all matters of faith and practice, then it alone tells us and has the right to tell us what the greatest question in life truly is. I don't want you to hear me saying this morning that no other question matters except how a person must be saved. That's, That's not at all what I'm saying. Questions like, how can we solve world hunger is a very important question. It's a very important issue. Or, how can we cure cancer? Or, what career path should I take? Or, 
where should I go to school, or where should I live, or who should I marry? All of these are very, very important questions, and I'm not saying that they're not important questions. In fact, you should think very seriously about the answer to those questions. I'm not saying that these aren't important questions. What I'm saying is that there is an ultimate question that the Bible asks. And that all of us must answer. In comparison to what matters to God, all of these questions cannot be our ultimate concern in life. Christ has empowered us by His Holy Spirit to be His witnesses to the end of the earth. This is our ultimate mission. This is our ultimate task. Would you look with me at our passage this morning in Matthew? Matthew leaves us with the impression that this is the final thing that Jesus leaves his disciples with. Many of you may not know this, but this is called the Great Commission. This is the Great Commission. This is what Christ is sending his disciples. And a disciple is a learner, a student of Christ, one who, another word for a disciple is a Christian, okay, or a believer. Those are all synonymous. And this passage here is one of the most famous, famous passages in all of the Bible. It's really the very passage that is the inspiration for all of our foreign and global missions, even our North American missions. This is the passage that sends men and women away from their homes to risk life and limb for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is it. Here's what the Word says. Now the eleven disciples, remember there's eleven because Judas has shown himself to be a traitor. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This passage this morning has a main point, and that main point is this. The work of the Master must master the work of his emissary. The work of the master must master the work of his emissary. Another word for emissary is an ambassador, one who is sent out on behalf of his ruler. And so that the main passage, the main point of what we are talking about today is that Christ is the authority that we are to follow and his work His concern in life must master our concerns in life. This is not just for pastors, those who want to be professional in the ministry. It is for all of us. In fact, the command to reach the end of the earth, the end of the age, cannot be fulfilled in the lives of 11 disciples who are going to soon meet their death. 
It is going to have to be carried out by every individual believer, every local church body from here on out. In fact, all of us, red and yellow and black and white, who sit here this morning, we are the product of men and women who made this verse, who made this commission their life's work. And if it weren't for those men and women, today we would not have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, this mission does not stop with us. It must continue with us. And I want to take this and I want to make several points about this. I want to look at these verses individually and see what they mean. First verse, verses 16 and 17. It says that now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. There's a theme in this one individual verse, and it is this. That these men are obeying, but they are obeying in doubt. The disciples go to Galilee, and to the mountain which Jesus had told them to go. We know, though, that the journey must have been clouded with doubt in the minds of some, since those who are there are still doubting, even though they're with Jesus. I want you to, just for a moment, imagine what those disciples who doubted the resurrection were thinking as they walked along that journey to the top of that mountain. They were probably walking along thinking to themselves, am I really spending my day going to see a ghost? Is that what I'm doing with my life on this Monday or whatever this, this Tuesday is? Am I really going with a group of men up to a mountaintop to see someone who's raised from the dead? Imagine if I came to you and I said, come with me, we're going to go to a mountaintop. Remember Bobby? Remember Bobby who just died? We're going to go see him. He's raised from the dead. Some of you are going to say, that's crazy. Why do we think that in the, the old days that, that that was some kind of fairy tale world that dragons were just a reality of their world? Like when we're watching these fantasy movies and there's trolls and there's dwarfs and they just, the troll walks up or the dwarf walks up, the elf walks up and they just talk to them normally. They just expect it. It's just part of their world. And we assume that these men weren't men and women just like us. And if I come to you and I tell you, we're going to go see a man who raised from the dead. Come on, our friend. We're going to go see him on that mountain. You're going to say, pump the brakes. This is crazy. People don't raise from the dead. But nonetheless, something took them there. They're asking themselves, is this even real? Do these people who I'm actually walking with in this journey... That they actually believe that a man really rose from the dead? And yet, they're still going. Some of us are doing the very same thing. We're going along together with the church, but we're not sure if we really believe in the life-changing story of Christ's resurrection. I mean, we're here... You know, we come because mom brought us when we were babies and, 
And because we've always been comfortable with coming on Sunday, and, and there is a certain sense of comfort and, and fellowship, and people talk about the importance of community, and that, that's, all, that's all true, and it's all very important, but, but do we really, when, when the rubber hits the road, when we, when we go to bed at night, do we really believe that a man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? Do we really believe that that story is not a fairy tale, but that it is a historical reality, that there was a man as dead as every dead body across the street in our cemetery, that there was a man that dead, and that that dead man came to life? You have to answer that question. And and, and answering it in the, you can't answer it with the I don't know as a Christian. You have to answer it as either no or yes. Because once you answer it as yes, it transforms everything you know about the world. It, It answers the question, is there life after death in the positive? Yes, there's life after death. How do I know? Because one has lived after death. I've seen, they've seen it. They, They told us about it. And if we really believe that our lives are transformed, it looks different. But some of us are going along doing the same thing. We're going along with the church. We're just not sure if we really believe in this. We're going through the motions and we're talking the talk. But the question is, are we walking the walk? Are we convinced that the news of Christ's resurrection is really true? Because if we really are convinced of that truth, we couldn't help but proclaim it. If it really is true, the men and women who are spending their lives in fear of death, we would know to give them the bread of life if we really believe it. And so this morning, I want you to see that these men and women weren't different from us. They were obeying, but they were obeying in doubt. I want us to obey in belief and in trust. Look at verse 18. It says that Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This authority is Jesus' authority to determine what matters in life. All authority in heaven means this. It means every type, every person, everything, all in nature, that is animals and trees and floods and hurricanes and tornadoes, government, health, everything, Christ is all authoritative. The word there, the meaning there means that Christ carries now with him the authority that God alone carries. And that is complete sovereignty over everything. If you want to know what that complete sovereignty over everything is, it's like when you get down on your knees every night and you plead with God for X, Y, and Z. You are saying, I believe in your complete sovereignty over everything. I believe you can do this, God. I believe that you will do it whether you, if you want to. I believe that you won't do it. It will be good for me if you don't. It will be good for me if you do. I believe that you can. 
You are the one who has authority over everything. And then when you sit with God, there's not a thing you can't ask him for. Jesus says, I I have that authority. And and when you pray, you're not praying in vain. But this is a new authority. It, It is the authority of his resurrection. It is the authority over death and the authority to give life. Christ has fulfilled His earthly mission and all glory has been given to Him. And His glory is seen in the authority over every living thing, over the world, the cosmos, and even their future fate. But what does Christ have in mind when He claims to have authority? Why say this at all? I mean, who even doubted that He had authority? We know some doubted, but did they doubt His authority? They went to the mountain. There were some there who who doubted to accept what they have seen. And we must be careful not to be too harsh with those. As we've already seen, we're very similar to them in our doubt. So the question is, why does Christ say to us that He has authority? It means this, that Christ gets to determine what is most important, not just for believers, but for everyone. It means that Christ has the authority to tell us what really matters in life. Even the atheist cannot say that the belief in Christ doesn't matter outside of the authority of Christ. When when you meet people on the highways and byways and you're sharing Christ with them and they tell you this doesn't matter, they are not the authority. Christ is the authority. He has all authority. They cannot say to you this is unimportant. Not in any authoritative way. And this passage reminds us that no one has authority. Christ has all authority and not us. If you want to be sure though that you're living in God's will, then you must make the mission of the Master the mission of your life since He has all authority. There are many so-called authorities that are telling us what matters most in life. Our parents tell us that settling down in marriage is is the goal of life. That settling down with a career in marriage, that's what they want to see. They want to see that we're healthy. They want to see that we have a house and that we've got a career and we've got a marriage and that we have babies. and, And they tell us that's what matters. And they are an important authority in our life. Many of us, when, when, life, when life gets hard, we immediately pick up our phone and call our parents because they're the authority and we ask them, what do we do? I remember I got into a wreck and when I got into a wreck, first, first person I called, I didn't call 911. I called dad. Because dad gave me the, the, the mission. He told me what to do. He said, son, get out your insurance card. I, I didn't know what to do. I got out my insurance card. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, Dad. Yeah, I'm okay. Good. Make sure that you calm everybody down. That, you know, that it's Miami. You get into a wreck here. It's really hot. And people are angry already. This is one of the most angriest cities in America. You know what I'm talking about. You got to worry about getting shot when you get into a wreck. You really do. So I went to the authority in my Dad. And, and then just a moment later... Some police officers showed up and they became the authority there. And they told me what to do with my car. And they told me where to go. And every decision in that moment I was making based off of authority. 
And there are a lot of authorities that are competing in our lives that tell us what matter. Our college professors, uh, they're an authority in our life, and they tell us that what really matters is that we, that we end oppression. And that does, that's important, right? It is important that we settle down. It is important that we have a good family and that we have a good job and we can care for ourselves. It is important that we end world hunger, that we fight hard against racism and gender discrimination. It's very important that we fight against those things. And I'm not at all saying that they're not important. You know, even our own lives, even our own personal selves, we tell ourselves, we act as an authority in our own life saying that what really matters in our life is our ultimate, our, our happiness, our overall joy. And we act as an authority in our own lives. We say that, that the end of life, the goal of life is my joy. And so there are all these competing authorities in our lives. But Christ says, all authority has been given to me. All authority. Christ gets to tell us what we do with our lives. And our lives are what they are based upon whether we're obeying Him or whether we're obeying ourselves or our parents. Or, or our professors, what is, the, what is the ultimate authority in your life? And you really have to answer this question. It's so often demonstrated by what you prize in this life, by what you make ultimate. This is a question we must answer. Who is our ultimate authority? Who gets the final say-so for the direction of our lives? The Bible tells us that Christ has all authority. And for everyone, especially for believers, He is our Lord. Christ is both Savior and Lord. Lord means He is our Master. So we've, we've gone through our baptism. We've been baptized. We're standing there. We're wet. Now what? What do I do? And so many times we give people a Bible and we say, all right, here's your Bible. Now make sure that you're doing all of these things. That's not the commission of Christ. Christ has given us a work. Certainly He wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ. In fact, this very act of discipleship making is something we are both a product of, we both receive and give. We're receiving discipleship, we're giving discipleship. That's the life. Listen to what verse 19 says. It says this, go therefore, right after authority, I have all authority, so I get to tell you this is what life, this is what matters in life. And hear the echoes of Matthew 6, the very same book. Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Hear the echoes here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The answer to the question, now what, is this. Go and make, mature, and multiply disciples for Christ. 
go make, go mature, and go multiply disciples for Christ. Every one of you. The trajectory of the Christian life is not to remain stationary in our faith, but rather to be active for God. Some of us get saved and we do nothing in the kingdom and in the ministry for Him. How many people have we ever shared Christ with? How many people are we working at? Are we sacrificing to make disciples? That's a question we have to answer. So I want to talk about two things. The what. First off, the what of making disciples. So first off, the what. What are we to do? Christ says make disciples. Jesus told us that the Christian is the light of the world and that he or she is to illumine the darkness with the knowledge of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ. But some disagree over just what the mission of the church is. Are we to just go and heal the sick? Very important. Are we to just go and feed the poor? Also very important. Are we to clothe the naked? Are we to go? That's very important, by the way, in case you were wondering. There's a lot of nakedness here, but that's by choice in South Florida. Are, are, we, to, are we to go and, and release the oppressed? Are we to go and, and educate? Are we to make the world a better place? For sure, all of these things are important. But is that, is, is that our mission? Is that what Christ said, go and do? Did he say, since I've got all authority, I want you to go and I want you to eradicate the world of racism? An impossible task, by the way, in a fallen world. There is one way to eradicate it. In Christ, there is no Greek, no Jew. That, that's one way. That's the only way. Is that the ultimate goal? No, Christ says, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go and make disciples. That is our commission. And not just followers of the Christian religion, but followers of Christ. Making disciples is the central focus of the Christian mission. Whatever the church does, it must never forsake that central mission to make disciples. And this is not to say that the church doesn't have a responsibility to care for the poor, or to liberate the oppressed, or to heal the sick. Those are proximate ends. But it is not the ultimate end of the church. Because Jesus has the authority, and, and think, just for a moment, think about how important these things are in the world. Eradicating racism, eradicating world hunger, those things are so important. How do we, how do we you know, eradicate the gender distinction? How do we do that? How do we, how do we get rid of oppression? That's a big deal. It's the ultimate ends. But in the church, those, those things are, they are proximate. That means they're secondary. They're not ultimate. If we feed this community with physical bread only, we fail. We are to feed the community with the bread of life. That is our goal. That's our mission. Each and every one of us. 
None of these things that are important are ultimate. Only in making and maturing disciples for Christ can the church say that it is effectively accomplishing His mission. Finally, Jesus commands us to take the message of forgiveness for sins in His name to every nation. This command has both a negative sense and a positive sense. The negative sense of taking His his gospel to every nation is this. It's negatively, we can say, that no one has the right to withhold the gospel from any person based on any prejudice whatsoever. No one has the right, when when Jesus says, go in every nation, negatively that command is, you don't have the right to withhold the gospel from anyone you deem unworthy based on your prejudice. There is no partiality in Christ. God saves gay people the way He saves straight people. God saves Muslims the way He saves Baptists. God saves blacks the same way He saves whites, and whites the same way He saves blacks. God saves according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is no one that you can withhold the gospel from, even the people you hate. Uh, Let me suggest to you that the redeemed person works to eradicate that hate of anyone in his life. Remember what our mission is, that if we're going to reach South Florida for Christ, we have got to see God's image on every person, even the person that we deem most unworthy. God redeems males and females the way He redeems transgender. I know what you talk about when you leave here and you talk politics with your wife or with your husband. I know what you're talking about. That's so weird. This thing's just going to hell in a handbasket. Those Democrats. God redeems Democrats the way He redeems Republicans. Listen to me. When Jesus says, go into all nations, I think we only think that if we don't leave this behind and go out into the jungles of Talamanca, that now we're fulfilling it. No. It means that son-of-a-gun neighbor that you got next door. It means that miserable boss that you have. You don't get to withhold the gospel. That is not your right. The authority has said, go to all nations. You don't get to withhold it. In a positive sense, Christ's command says to make disciples of every nation, and it means that the ministry of the church is more global as well as it is both global and local. But the the meaning of making is that we make it our trajectory, that we're actually out doing something, that we're not sitting stationary. Our missionaries are precious in the sight of the Lord. They take most literally this command. They deny themselves. They take up their crosses. They follow Christ even to the end of the world. These men have taken, these men and women have taken this command most seriously to bury, let the dead bury their dead and to follow Christ and His literal cross even to their martyr's death. Certainly the apostles in this case did not command the members of the churches they planted across the Roman Empire, though, to leave their homes and go into the foreign land. 
For many of us, the call to make disciples of all nations will be to leave our homes and go into a foreign place. But it is not the call for everyone. And just because you're not leaving your home and going into a foreign nation does not mean you can't fulfill this command. That wasn't the command to the Roman church. Leave Rome. It wasn't the command to Ephesus. Leave Ephesus. It wasn't the command to the Galatians. Leave Galatia. The command was, let your deeds be known among men and women. The command was to, to preach and proclaim the excellencies of Christ to every living creature where you find yourself. But this command would not be fulfilled without men and women who did leave their homes. And so for those who leave and those who don't leave, we must all fulfill this command. Let it not be the case that men and women would risk their lives and leave this country of comfort. Let, it, let, us, not, let us not treat their sacrifice in vain by not bringing a casserole to our next door neighbor. Let us not look on contempt for the sacrifice that they make because we are uncomfortable by taking our casserole to a next door neighbor. Don't let that be us. Now, what's the how? The how is you do two things. You baptize and you catechize. Baptize means to immerse in water. That's the initiation. But catechize is an ongoing process. Catechize means to instruct someone in the principles of the Christian faith by means of question and answer. I, I don't know why Miamians, for some reason, assume that we don't have to learn more about our faith. Christians, maybe it's not just Miamians, but Christians. They care about singing. That's a big deal. But can I just, can I just be honest with you? be honest with you. Christians sometimes make me hate music. I'm serious. Because we are always constantly griping about one type or the other. And yet, Jesus doesn't say, go and make a certain type of worship music he says, make disciples. What matters is, is preaching. And I know Christians all over the world who will go and listen to, can I say crap? Crap messages just to have some kind of feeling for 30 minutes in the music. That is not what Christ commanded us to do. Is it or is it not? If it is, show me. We'll do that. I'm begging you. If it's there, show, show me. No, it means you culturally have made something ultimate that Christ doesn't. And we just saw, who's the authority here? Either he is or you are. And he says, I say what matters is you make disciples. You baptize them, you catechize them. This is a teaching religion. We are to know God. If it wasn't a teaching religion, then why did he give us a book? It's teaching. Oh, I don't have time for teaching. No, 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 I don't have time for teaching. I'm too busy binge-watching Sherlock Holmes on the BBC. Which, by the way, I recently binge-watched. It's really good. But! But I get paid to learn this book, so... We know nothing about the Word. And we fight over music. 
And we care about those things. And again, music is important, but that's not the mission. It's not the ultimate mission. You say, I never did well in school. Neither did the fishermen. That's why they were fishermen. You can know this book. It is important to know it. You say, why? I can give you all of the blessings that, that God's Word gives to you, direction for your life, I can give you that. But why is Christ's Word, all authority has been given to me, not enough? Your parents sometimes would say to you, you know, just do it. And you would say to them, why? And they would say to you, what? Because I'm your parent. Because I'm the parent. You may not like that, but Christ says, I'm the authority. You do because I said so. But we trust that what he does, like a parent trusts their, like a child trusts their parent. We trust that what he's telling us to do. It's good. It's good for us. It's why we ought to do it. So we make disciples. We baptize, we catechize. Baptism is the initiatory rite. It's the first thing we do. And so we are to make disciples. That's how we make them. The church's mission is most simple form, and its most simple form is to do these two things, baptize and catechize disciples for Christ. In other words, we are to make and mature people for Christ. This is a subtle command, and if we're not careful, even the most godly Christian may be making disciples of a different sort than disciples for Christ. We are susceptible to following certain pastors or certain types of worship or certain Christian fads, the prayer of Jabez. You guys know the prayer of Jabez way better than the Great Commission. I read the prayer of Jabez this past week from 1 Chronicles. And just reading through the prayer of Jabez, I see why it's so appealing. Because it promises us peace. Ooh. I, Jabez prayed a prayer and he got peace. That's fine if God wants to give you peace. For the prayer of Jabez, for, for every prayer like Jabez's prayer in Scripture, there are a thousand others that say, suffer for Christ's sake. But leave it to Christians who want that one prayer piece. And we know that better than Great Commission. And you know why you're not following Great Commission, but it's easier to follow Jabez. The reason why that Christian fad was so impressive is because it's easy. This one's hard. This one's going to cost us friends. This one's going to cost us, cost us our lives, really. This one's hard. So we go to Jabez. Ooh, Jabez. But the Great Commission... Man, I can't be talking about Jesus on, on Facebook. I'm going to get trashed. Can't be talking about Jesus around my friends. I'm going to lose him. These in and of themselves, loving these teachings, they're not evil, but they are necessary expressions of living in a diverse world. And so we got to think about this. We have to think about the fact that we are living in a world well, we have all of these different views and these different fads and, and these, different, these different voices. They, they are a necessary expression of living in a diverse world where some negotiable practices are permitted within the body of Christ. However, God has given men great personalities to lead churches, but these men are sinners like the rest of us. Paul told the Corinthians to follow his example only as he followed the example of Christ. We too must be careful to make and mature men and women and children to be like Christ, not disciples of someone or something else. 
The church makes disciples, but I use that word make very carefully because we only make disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a participation in making. Remember what Christ told the disciples in the account in Acts 1.8. I will give you my spirit. You will have the power of the spirit. That means in this mission, we make disciples. We, we make them as we participate with the Holy Spirit. The only way we're going to ever make disciples is in, in the work of the Spirit. We are participating with Him. He's LeBron James. You are Amon Shumpert. I mean, if it's just you, you ain't going to win nothing. You need LeBron. Maybe I shouldn't use LeBron because he keeps losing. Maybe I should use he is the Stephen Curry of the, uh, or, the, or the Kevin Durant. You want to win? You want this mission to be effective? You go out there in your own power and you try and do it your way, going to fail. You got to go with the Spirit. Otherwise, Nothing. So we got to make as we participate in the Holy Spirit. And we do this as we bring them in through baptism and as we catechize them. Or another word is to mature them. And I use the word mature in the same sense that I use the word make. We are incapable of maturing a single person in spiritual maturity by ourselves alone. It is by God's Holy Spirit, and I have to remind myself this, it is by God's Holy Spirit living in a person that he or she matures into the head, which is Christ. And once again, God has permitted us to participate in this work. He has instituted the Lord's Supper to be an example of how we mature one another as we remember that we all share in the one bread. He has given to us shepherd pastors in His church. God has given to you pastors to mature you. Listen to me, I'm going to say this again, and I'll say it until I'm red in the face. And by the way, as hot as it is in here, I should be nice and red right now. You can call me any time. I will let you buy me coffee any time. Some of you have yet to make me your pastor. You can call me anytime. You can come and see me anytime. Heck, I don't sleep anymore now anyway. I've got all these babies. Don't call and wake up the babies. Listen to me. I want to be your pastor. I want to help you mature into Christ. Some of you are dealing, and by the way, I'm not the only one. There are other men enlisted in this. Dave is enlisted in this. Kathleen is enlisted in this. Johan, Rudy, all of our deacons, they are here to mature you, to help you. If you've got a question about your life and about your spirituality, we're here for it. We'll make time. Please, don't hesitate to ask. Stop walking out those back doors. We want to know you. I can't call every one of you. I can only preach one sermon. Today the sermon is how to reach South Florida for Christ. Some of you are dealing with marital problems. I don't know that. Call me. We'll go to lunch. We'll do something. 
I'll send someone else out. Men who are just as capable. Women who are just as capable. Because Christ told us this is, this is what's most important. You make them and you mature them. We go around and we make people and we don't mature them. And so we got a bunch of infantile Christians who are still living in the flesh rather than living in the maturity of the Spirit. Finally, Christ says this in verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ empowers us for this mission. Listen, it's one thing for the general to command, go and fight this battle. It's another thing when the general tells us, go and fight this battle. The outcome is guaranteed and here's all the artillery. You are not fighting this warfare alone. Yes, yes, you are in a heavenly warfare against principalities of this dark world, but God has given you the Spirit for this mission. And the outcome's guaranteed. I mean, if, if, if I told you today, hey, you could play on, uh, uh, who's going to win next year in, 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 in uh, basketball? It's going to be uh, uh, Golden State. You could go and play on Golden State's team. I use a lot of sports analogies. Sorry, ladies. Um, if you're going to go and play, if I said you could go and play, you say, yeah, but I know they're going to win already. Yeah, but wouldn't you want to play? That's what all the players are doing right now. They're all jumping on the bandwagon because they want some rings too. They know it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to win next year. It's not really a foregone conclusion, but this is a foregone conclusion. Christ is saying, I'm with you. This, this matters. You don't have to worry. You, you look over there across the street and you see that guy walk into his house and you think, or that woman walk into her house, and you think, that person's impossible to save. I can't reach them. Christ is with you. You're empowered by the Spirit. You don't know. You don't know. Start working at it. Christ has given us discomfort. The word behold in the Greek here means to pay careful attention to something. That means this is important. Look at this. Don't, don't miss this because if you miss this, this task is going to be daunting. If you miss this last part, this whole task seems impossible. I think about a parent who assures their child that they can sleep in their own room because they're right there with them. The ordeal is still scary, but the comfort in knowing that someone is protecting them and ensuring their success gives the child the courage they need to accomplish their mission. Likewise, the task of making and maturing disciples is a daunting task indeed. Not only is it exhausting physically in what it demands of us, but it can also be spiritually exhausting as well. At times, the apostles, the prophets, and even Jesus himself displayed great displeasure with the lack of maturity in believers. But we must never commission people to work in Christ's mission without reminding them that Christ is with them all the way, guaranteeing that their work is not in vain. Ultimately, this work will glorify God even when men and women fail to respond and mature the way they think they should. Listen to me. When you go out with God's word, God guarantees this. My word will not return unto me void. He will make it go where he wants. When you are in this mission, it either condemns or convicts. It either convicts unto repentance or it condemns unto death. And you have been successful 
when you obey. The outcome's in the Lord's hands. Whether your neighbor comes to Christ or not is not what you can determine. The Holy Spirit will determine it. One sows, says Paul. Another waters, says Paul. But God gives the growth. I ask you this morning three questions. I want you, as you leave here this morning, to ask yourself these questions. I want you to ask yourself this. How can I use my life to fulfill Christ's mission to make, mature, and multiply disciples for Him? How can I use my life to fulfill Christ's mission to make, mature, and multiply disciples for Him? I don't know what your particular life situation may be. And maybe if you need some help, you can ask me. I I would be glad to help you with that as well. There's some creativity. How can I make, mature, and multiply disciples at my job? I got a neighbor. How can I make and mature this neighbor? How can I do that? Number two, who is there? I want you to ask, this is very important. Think of a face. Maybe some of you were thinking this very morning of a face. Who is there in my life? The, 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 the idea of South Florida is widespread, but I'm not asking you personally to get all six million members. We wouldn't be able to fit them in this church. I'm not asking you to get all six million people. I'm asking you to name one. Start with one. Who is there in my life that I know needs me to work to make and mature them to be disciples for Christ? Who is it? I would say to start with the person who shows the most promise and the most concern for these things. Start there. Any fisherman knows that you don't just cast your your line willy-nilly. That's not to say you won't catch a fish every once in a while where you don't think you should. But be productive. When the disciples went into towns and those towns didn't receive the word, they they wiped the dust off their feet in condemnation and went on to the next. If you've got someone in your life who is really searching, cash your line right there. Finally, this is a major one. This is a major question. What idols do I need to tear down in my life in order to focus more on fulfilling the mission of Christ? Some of you say, I just don't have time to do this. I'm busy. And Satan loves us when we're busy. Remember what Paul said, those of you who are single... You can make your life's work God's work. It's a wonderful life. Those who are married, their first concern has to be the home. But that doesn't mean it's the only concern. How, how can you tear down, or what idols do you need to tear down in order to make this mission a reality in your life? Maybe some of you need to sell that Mercedes-Benz. And stop working so much to simply have a car that's going to be obsolete in five years. Two years. Maybe some of you need to work less. Be here more. So that you mature. So that you learn how to mature and multiply. 
Maybe that every night Netflix binge. You're going to have to give up. What are you willing to give up to follow the Master's command? Remember this morning as we leave, the Master, the Master has given us a commission. We must make the Master's commission master of our lives. Let's pray. Father, empower this church to take the gospel into our world. You know the worlds, Lord God. You know their individual worlds. You know who is there, who is listening. You know who they have an audience with. I pray that you would give them the courage to speak, the words to speak. Give them the the knowledge of your word and prepare them for service. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name and for your glory that we fulfill your mission. Amen. Would you stand with us as we go?